Hello, my name is John Malloy, director of the Center for Public Ethics at Martin Luther University College, based in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to The Moment. In this series, we try to reimagine our post-pandemic life together after our COVID-19 life apart. You're listening to our special series on polarization, where we ask some of Canada's leading thinkers why we're entering our post-COVID world so divided and can faith play a role in bringing us together. Today we are in conversation with Sean Spear, former advisor to Prime Minister Stephen Harper, senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and frequent writer and commentator on public policy. Sean, welcome to The Moment. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, John. Well, Sean, as you know, the theme of this podcast series is political polarization in Canada. Not only that there are seems to be more extreme views out there, but even those holding the middle ground appear to be more hostile to their political competitors. I know that this is a topic of great interest to you, who's uh, someone who spends a considerable amount of time thinking about public policy. And although I provided you with a very brief introduction, would you like to tell us a little bit more about your background and your interest in this topic? Sure. Um, let me just start with a couple of biographical points, and then I'll get directly to um, the, the subject of political polarization. Um, you know, I think probably the most important thing um, about me is that, um, you know, besides the fact that I'm a husband and a father, um, that I'm from Thunder Bay. Um, and, you know, I, I think that has shaped the way I think about our politics and our society. I, I grew up feeling distant from the center of politics um, and the center of our economy and culture. And I think that um, even as I've moved to major cities like Toronto and Ottawa and Vancouver and, and presently New York City, um, that sense of, of distance and the kind of empathy for those who feel like they're um, on the outside looking in is something that I've, I, I think, probably colors the way I think about these issues. And, and in that vein, John, you know, I think there are reasons to be concerned about the rise of political polarization, and we can, we can talk about those. I think if I had something to say that may be different than what others who you've had on the program uh, might be inclined to say. I I actually think political polarization in of itself isn't a bad thing. You know, we live in a highly diverse society. We're becoming more and more diverse um, uh, because of uh, immigration policy. And, you know, politics at some level is about a series of first order questions about how we're going to organize our society, how we're going to organize our economy. Um, and, you know, it seems to me it's natural um, that the political marketplace is going to reflect uh, competing ideas about the tensions between freedom and equality, liberty and order, you know, conceptions of virtue and the, and the good life. And so I'm not down on an, a kind of antagonistic or polarized politics in and of itself. Uh, in fact, I think in some ways that reflects the inherent health of our pluralistic society. Where I have concerns, though, is when polarization becomes um, inherently oppositional, what some academics refer to as effective polarization, the idea that um, you're opposed to the other side merely as a, uh, because of, of, of a kind of inherent partisanship as opposed to uh, reflecting these in inevitable um, 
differences in terms of how we think about our society, our economy, and 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 how we can create the conditions for human flourishing. So let me, uh, uh, I, I want to pick up on a, a number of points you made. We also want to hear a little bit more about you, but um, as uh, a part of your biography, but what does, uh, what does the term mean to you, polarization? I mean, it's interesting. We use it all the time and yet it has so many definitions. So what does it mean to you and, and perhaps a little bit more of the type of work that you're, you're, you're doing now? And, you know, I'm thinking of the hub and, and other initiatives that you have. Uh, well, th- thanks. I, I've been going through this kind of process of introspection uh, really since um, 2016 um, when Donald Trump surprised everyone and first won um, the, the, the Republican primary to serve as the party's presidential candidate. And then, of course, even more shockingly, um, when he was elected president. You know, let me put my cards on the table, John. I, I think of myself as a small C conservative, someone who um, broadly speaking, thinks that conservative ideas are, are good and right. And here we had, um, you know, this really um, grotesque person um, become the standard bearer of the political party associated with broad, you know, in broad terms associated with those ideas. And so, you know, through my work um, as a, a fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, a, a fellow at the Public Policy Forum, and then, as you mentioned, through a new project that I'm involved in called um, The Hub, uh, which is a, a platform for commentary, analysis, and debate about um, Canadian public policy issues. I've been kind of grappling with this question, you know, what were the economic and, and cultural and political conditions that enabled someone like him um, to rise to the top of American politics? What did we all miss? And you know, there's been a tendency, I think, on the part of some to attribute it to this question of political polarization. And as I say, we can we can we can talk a bit about that. But at a fundamental level, I think it reflects a failure on the part of our politics um, to um, to root itself in the kind of interests, aspirations, and concerns of of a lot of people who increasingly felt like politics was failing. To represent them, and so, um, you know, it seems to me, if we want to avoid something like that in Canada, we need to recommit ourselves to a more representative and responsive politics. And I'll I'll, I'll stop in one second, but it's just worth emphasizing, uh, John, that a more representative and responsive politics may be a more polarized and a more messy politics. Um, but I think if you're kind of picking your poison, that is preferable. Um, than the kind of of dysfunctional politics that we're seeing in the United States um, and, and elsewhere. Could I just uh, pick up on that and and ask about polarization in Canada? Uh, it's funny when we put together the idea of this this podcast series, and we're looking at sort of six guests. Um, we had no idea that truckers would take over Ottawa, and then they did. So we were, you know, in a way, thinking, "Wow, we're we're right on target." But I think, and I've asked each of the guests this, I don't think, you know, that's an extreme uh, representation of polarization in Canada, but do you see it elsewhere? Do you see it in more subtle ways? Do you see it manifesting itself uh, in sort of the, the daily political discourse or, or is it just the truckers on Parliament Hill? I guess, are the truckers on Parliament Hill polarization or are they a symptom of something bigger that's going on? Yeah, I, I think the latter. I, I'd say 
I'd make two points. First of all, um, you know, I think it's fair to say you've spent some time in elected life, John. You know, my sense is that Canadian politics used to be mostly fought within the kind of 40-yard lines of debate, and increasingly our political parties are, you know, moving off those goal, those those um, those lines, and, and politics is becoming um, just generally speaking more polarized. Uh, you know, I think the the right-wing parties are moving uh, to the right. The left-wing parties on a set of issues are, are moving to the left. Uh, so just by, just on a kind of in, empirical basis, I think there's evidence of some degree of polarization. Um, but the reason why the, the trucker convoy speaks to the issue I raised earlier, which is this question of representative and responsiveness, you know, one of the things that worries me, John, is that we have in Canada parties forming government with less than 40% of the vote. We consistently have something like a third or higher of eligible vote, eligible voters not voting. Um, we have, as you know firsthand, a highly disciplined system um, in parliament, in, which precludes um, parliamentarians from you know, fully reflecting the multitude of perspectives um, in their respective constituencies. And, and I, I worry a bit that, um, that those constraints around full political participation in Canada um, are, the, are the kind of seeds of, um, of a potential political uh, dysfunction. Um, you know, all this to say, I think, that um, if you look at what happened in the United States, if it really was um, uh, the rise of Trump, if it really was uh, the revenge of the people in places that didn't matter, um, you know, it seems to me the, the big question for political parties, for policymakers is who are we missing in our politics? Whose voices and perspectives aren't being reflected? And, um, you know, I think that is a... Um, responsibility that, that rests on all parties from across the spectrum um, to make sure that um, that we're achieving um, greater representativeness and responsiveness. Can I pick up on this idea of, uh, I, I mean, you use the term revenge, but not necessarily revenge, just, just people who haven't had a voice, finding a voice that's going to be disruptive. Uh, you mentioned that at the beginning. There are individuals out there who would say polarization and you kind of hinted at this at the beginning. Polarization isn't a bad thing. Um, polarization is maybe a whole bunch of people who have been used to calling the shots starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, we've had voices from marginalized communities, for example, who have been amplified through the pandemic. And, you know, I've certainly heard leaders of, for example, Black Lives Matter or other organizations say, yeah, we got a whole bunch of old white guys who have been used to, you know, as I joked in the, the last podcast, I represent that comment, but, you know, old white guys that used to run the show and now they're getting uncomfortable. So what are they doing? Well, there's you know, Malloy and Crowder saying, oh, we have to be more civil to each other. We're polarized. What about people who argue that this is just about uh, the system getting a swift kick that it deserves? I, I think there's something to that. Um, you, you know, it seems to me that, um, you know, one thing we learned, John, is if these voices can't find a, a way to participate in mainstream politics, they don't go away. 
<laughs> you know, I, I, there's this kind of assumption that seems to govern Canadian politics is we just pretend these ideas and these voices don't exist, that somehow um, we can maintain political stability and social cohesion and kind of go about um, um, our our politics um, in a way that, you know, preferences stability and political efficiency, which is something we often pride ourselves on relative to the the gridlock and dysfunction in the United States. Um, but, it, you know, it seems to me the risk is that something triggers um, these voices to um, come out from the shadows and that just goes boom through our entire political system. And in some ways, uh, the, the trucker convoy uh, was a manifestation of that. John, I mentioned um, that I'm a conservative. You mentioned that I work for former Prime Minister Harper. So I know these issues better from the right, although I've no doubt that they that they are present and exist on the left. But let me just give you a couple of concrete examples. Um, you know, something like 30 or 40 percent of Canadians consistently raise concerns about um, our immigration policy and the, the, the number of immigrants that we're bringing into the country uh, on an annual basis. Uh, presently, there really is no political vehicle, mainstream political vehicle that is um, um, bringing expression to, the, to those concerns. And I, I think it actually represents a, a risk to something extraordinary that we've managed to achieve in this country, which is relatively high levels of support for relatively high levels of immigration. And it, you know, pretending that 30 or 40% of Canadians simply don't exist, it seems to me actually over the long term risks putting that um, um, expression of Canadian exceptionalism at some risk. Let me give you another example. Um, uh, you know, American politics uh, at present is um, is being dominated by uh, questions of abortion rights. Um, in Canada, we, at pre we presently don't have um, anything really of a federal statute on the question of abortion rights. We've We've been operating by and large, at least at the national level, with something of a, a legislative or legal void. Um, this is a complicated question, um, but depending on um, the types of questions that pollsters ask Canadians, there is, you know, a, a, a minority share, but but a, a, a sizable minority that would be in favor of some kind of legislative framework that places some sort of 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 parameters around access to abortion. And presently, there is no major political party in the country uh, that brings expression to that um, that minority perspective. So I guess that's a, a long way of saying, um, and pardon me for my uh, for my rambling, but I've I've really come to the view um, in the aftermath of um, the 2016 presidential election that uh, over the long term, the safer bet for political stability and social cohesion is to kind of open up our politics, even if in the short term that makes our politics a bit messier, um, perhaps a bit more unedifying. I think on balance, um, that is a, 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 a more a preferable option um, than what we're presently having right now, which is a lot of gatekeepers, in effect, trying to keep out um, these voices, which I think um, on balance um, represents a long-term um, risk to our our democracy, to say nothing of the fact that it is in inherently um, anti-democratic. Well, let me push you just a little bit on the whole question of right and wrong. Um, 
I travel in circles. We probably travel in very similar circles where the folks who took over Parliament Hill, uh, most of my friends and, and colleagues or whatever would say were wrong. Um, they probably would use much more colorful language. They would say they were a bunch of yahoos who know nothing about Canadian politics. I mean, their demands were, were bizarre. Uh, on the vaccine question, they would say that anti-vaxxers, they would mock them for their, I'm going to do my own research and my, you know, on the internet, and my yoga instructor said uh, something to me, which has set me off. I mean, they would dismiss uh, a lot of thinking um, as being simply wrong. And our role is to stand up against them and to say it's wrong and we don't want you to be part of, of public discourse. And I'm sort of trying to say it in a dispassionate way, but, you know, I, I think I'm, you know, I've uh, got three vaccines and, and would love to have a fourth if they want to put, a, you know, looking for volunteers. I have a hard time uh, dealing with, you know, the, the sort of quasi conspiracy theory crowd out there. And I just wonder to what extent do people want them involved in, in their politics? Yeah, I think, you know, I think we can. I think we can probably broadly draw some clear lines um, around, you know, ideas or perspective that that we ought to um, isolate from mainstream politics. Um, but I, I think we ought to be careful about that. Um, that um, that a uh, you know that that in effect that's what happened in the United States through. So much of the pre-Trump era. One of the things that strikes me about the rise of, of Donald Trump, John, is how, in hindsight, Republican politicians and leaders seem to not really understand their own voters. Right? You know, you had Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and others, you know, who seem convinced that re the core Republican voting base wanted um, tax cuts for the rich, deregulation. And uh, free trade with China and significant reductions in the spending of on social services. And Donald Trump comes in, complete neophyte, and he has a better understanding of what motivates Republican voters than all of these Republican politicians who today, one gets the sense, have been completely destabilized because everything they believed um, was wrong. Um, so I guess I, I raised that point only because um, I think there is a risk that if we that if we do not find a way to incorporate ideas that we think may be weird or even objectionable um, into our politics, we are kind of laying the groundwork for greater um, disruption. Um, down down the road, and so you know, I let me you know I've been talking a bit abstractly. Let me be concrete, um, and this would you know this would not be representative of a lot of conservatives um, in Canada. But I've come to the view that proportional representation is something that we ought to be pursuing. That it's um, it is the the best means to achieve um, the kind of representativeness and responsiveness that I've been talking about today. Even though I recognize that over time, a PR would probably lead to the undoing of the Conservative Party of Canada as it splinters into, you know, a combination of ideological and regional factions. Um, but I still think, on balance, um, I can't unsee what I've seen over the past several years, and I think we need to kind of fortify our political system um, against um, uh, kind of Trump-like disruption. And I, I think that PR. 
could be part of a suite of changes that we make in, in order to do that. And can I ask you more about the, the changes? So, you know, I think of the role of, of our political leaders and institutions, the role of the media and the role of citizens. So starting, you've mentioned PR. What are other things that uh, uh, we could, changes we can make to the political system to, to deal with this? I, I, let me raise two concrete ones first. Um, I think we ought to, in, in, in parallel with moving to a PR system, I think we ought to significantly increase um, the, the number of elected officials in Canada. Um, you know, one of the reasons um, that we have um, a less scope for kind of policy entrepreneurship on the part of elected uh, officials is that our relatively small caucuses, cockeye, I guess, is the is the plural, um, um, enables party leaders to impose um, greater discipline. I think we see even in the, the British Parliament, a, a, a similarly a Westminster system that just having more parliamentarians seems to help create the conditions for greater entrepreneurship and even kind of intra degree disagreement and debate. So I think we ought to expand um, uh, the, the number of, of elected officials. And in so doing, of course, um, uh, increased representation in terms of the number of individuals um, that each um, elected official uh, is ultimately uh, aiming to represent. The second, uh, you mentioned the media. It's a really important one, John. Um, you know, the media often laments, you know, the use of talking points and slogans and so on um, by elected officials. But anytime, as you know, elected official breaks ranks with his or her party, how does the media characterize it? They characterize it as a chaos, disorder, the leader has lost control of his or her, um, his or her caucus, instead of uh, recognizing it for what it is, that we live in a highly pluralistic society and it's natural for there to be disagreement, not just uh, amongst parties, but with, within parties. And so I, I actually think if we're going to commit ourselves to a more representative and responsive politics, as our society becomes more diverse and, and inherently pluralistic, the media is going to have to change the way it reports on politics, that debate and tensions are natural and, and actually quite healthy because at the end of the day, I mean, if we could just kind of get to a basic fundamental level, we want our politics to be the place where we disagree um, um, so that um, these first order disagreements that are inherent to a country like Canada don't spill out into our work life, our family life, or worse, into violence. Um, politics at its best is the mechanism by which we kind of grapple with these questions. And so... Uh, you know, those are some changes I think we need institutionally and then sort of um, and, and then kind of operationally um, to to make our politics um, better positioned um, to to play that just absolutely essential function um, in, in helping us um, kind of work through um, the, the differences in a, a diverse pluralistic society. I, I can't resist uh, asking you on the media question. Um, you know, you you identified yourself as, I guess, small C conservative with with large C roots or that sort of thing. But um, the current debate uh, or series of debates amongst the conservative leadership candidates and just a lot of the rhetoric that's coming out of the conservative uh, campaign, leadership campaign that's going on, I've actually been been 
fascinated, I'm trying to find a neutral word, by the way that they are attacking the media. Uh, Certainly the CBC, and it seemed to start with the CBC, but now just seems to be the media in general, that it has a a left-wing bias. And, you know, I'm interested in what you see. I mean, is it just political rhetoric or is there something bigger going on out there? I, I, you know, commented to someone the other day, it worries me when there is a whole, you know, a significant number of Canadians that feel that the media is not representing them. And, you know, let's call it what it is. CBC is, is you know, it's taxpayers' dollars are going to fund them. And and this proportion of people feel that, that their views uh, don't represent them. I mean, how much of this is just sort of political rhetoric and how much of it should we be concerned that people aren't seeing themselves in, in the media? The CBC is, a, you know, is a, obviously a special case because it does receive a subsidy, but just in, in the media in general. It's 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 a great question. Um, you know, I'd say two things. First, there you know, no doubt, there's a degree of of political theater to it. Um, but I do think it reflects um, changes occurring in the media. Um, you mentioned that uh, John, that I'm um, uh, involved in a project called the Hub. Um, one of um, our forms of content is something called Hub Dialogues, which is a um, twice weekly twice weekly podcast that I host. Um, not too long ago, I had uh, a guest um, named Batyatya Unger Sargon, who's a, an editor at Newsweek, who's just published a book about um, about the media. And one thing that she observes is that um, the transition from an advertisement-based means of, of funding media to a subscription-based means has kind of changed the incentives for the media from one that um, sought to reach as broad audience as possible, um, so as to persuade it, uh, advertisers to to advertise with them, to one in, which is in search of of highly galvanized, more niche audiences, um, where the content is a reflection. It's almost a mirror, looking, um, you know, projecting the kind of views and perspectives and values of the the readers, which I think has. Um, led to some degree of ideological ideologicalization of our, our media. It's subtle. It's on the margins. I'm not claiming that they're all left wing radicals or something like that. But I, I I do think it's probably something that those who are focused on these questions of polarization and um, you know the state of our politics and so on probably do need to to think a bit about um, because it 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 will contribute to um, declining trust and in, in turn, um, some of the ferment that you're seeing on the right. I, I, let me just say this, uh, 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 that does it, of course, um, excuse some of the excesses that rhetorical excesses that we're seeing uh, on some of these issues. Um, but it is to say that it is not, you know, it is not completely, um, uh, unrooted from the facts that there there is something going on in the media that probably requires greater attention. Now, I don't, you know, we've talked about uh, politicians and institutions in the media. I don't want to let us off the hook, ordinary folk. What, what What's the role of citizens in, in all this? In fighting That's polarization, right. not, not, well, the media is part of it, but in fighting polarization. So. I'm so glad that you asked that, John. You know, let me, let me try to answer it as, as briefly as I can, uh, there is a class of politi- so-called political strategists 
these days that are convinced that what Canadians want is a kind of transactional politics. You know, that is to say, who can put forward the best set of of offerings for different voters and different groups, and then voters sort of sit down at their kitchen table and assess the kind of relative benefits of the different parties, and, and they vote accordingly. And so we've had now a series of elections that I would describe as mostly transactional. I actually think that that's underestimating Canadians, that Canadians um, are, that Canadians would respond positively to, you know, a kind of more future oriented, you know, um, pardon me for the word, visionary um, politics. And, um, And to the extent that that hypothesis is right, it's important that Canadians um, find a, a way to convey that um, to, to, and maybe they're doing that, John, by the the ongoing share that that simply aren't participating. But my kind of gut is that a, a politician that tested this hypothesis that skewed the uh, transactional politics that we've seen at the national level, we're presently seeing um, at the provincial level with competing. Um, buck a policy announcements um, that that those politicians would be rewarded. Um, uh, and let me just make one final point here, um, John. You've you're probably as concerned as I am by you know the the number of polls that tell us that Canadians are anxious about the future, that they're increasingly uh, unsure that their children will have better futures for them. I I, I actually think that these points are related that one of the reasons Canadians are unsure about the future is because no one's painting a picture of the future for them. They're too busy painting a picture of, of what they're going to give them today, now. And um, so this, this lack of future orientation of our politics, not only, not, not only is it sort of harmful in the moment, I actually think it, it, it contributes to this um, zero-sum polarized um, dynamic that we've been talking about today. And, and, and in so doing, actually um, it represents a way, a part of a way out of where we find ourselves, that if we could kind of recommit to a politics, a, a positive, some aspirational politics, um, it, it would do a, a great deal of good um, in our society um, more broadly. I want to I want to end uh, where we uh, we end with all the interviews. And, and this actually builds, I think, a little bit on what you've just been saying. And that's the role of uh, uh, faith, the role of religious communities. Uh, I'm the first to admit, I say this on, on every episode, that religion can divide people. But I also wonder if you see uh, faith and religious communities as a, a way of bringing people together and, and fighting this polarization. I sort of ask that as my as my final question every episode. So, I would say this to um, religious people and people of faith, um, that there are in some communities a sense of embattlement, uh, a, a sense of marginalization, a sense that um, our political class and others are, are kind of narrowing the scope for them to participate in, in the public square. And particularly on the right, John, this is leading to some appeal to you know what Rod Dreyer, the Christian writer, called the Benedict Option, the idea of of withdrawal. And um, I would just push back against that instinct. Um, people of faith 
have uh, something that the the rest of us are in search of. They have um, uh, they have a sense of service, a sense of purpose. They have the truth um, as they understand it, and so they shouldn't feel defensive and embattled. Um, they should feel like they are uniquely placed um, to contribute to our public life and to make a drift difference um, a- addressing some of the challenges that we've 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 talked about I I, I I'm you know I, I did an event last week where I, I, I with a faith-based group where I'm, I'm, I delivered a, a kind of similar message um, as David Brooks often says people of faith have what the rest of us want um, and so you know I would just encourage them to be confident and be um, and 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 know um, that there's a, a, a crucially important place for them um, in our public life. Well, thank you, Sean. I want to thank you very much for uh, sharing your insights today. I think that's a great place to uh, to wrap up the conversation. Thank you for joining us. It's been my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Moment, a production of the Center for Public Ethics at Martin Luther University College, the founding institution of Wilfrid Laurier University, located in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Visit our website, publicethics.ca, for resources and more information on other podcasts. The technical producer of today's recording was Jackson Del Cero, with support from Alex Kinsella. Creative Commons music was provided by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com. Thanks for joining us.